and the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time holds 28 medals. And his name is Michael Phelps. He holds the world record in the 400-meter individual medley, the 200-meter individual medley, the 200-meter freestyle, the 100-meter butterfly, and the 200-meter butterfly. For four consecutive Olympic Games, he was the most decorated athlete, which means that for 16 years in a row, he wore, he wore and won more medals than anyone else at the Games, dominating not just the sport of swimming, but the entire Olympic Games. He is a specimen of an athlete. You know this if you've ever seen him. But there's not enough time to talk about all of the things that went into the success of Michael Phelps as an athlete. But there is one thing that I want to mention that I think relates somewhat to our passage this morning. And that is the discipline of mental imagery or visualization. Visualization involves playing mental images or videos in your head that rehearse the movements, the feelings, and the decisions that one goes through as they participate in their sport. Doing this prepares athletes mentally, not only in dealing with situations, but also dealing with nerves and pressure. And this tactic is not at all unique to Michael Phelps. I'm just using him as an example because he was so successful in his sport. It's also not a, a new tactic. But Phelps is a little different than your average athlete. His coach, Bob Bowman, who was his coach since he was 11 years old, instructed him as a teenager to play what he called mental videotapes of his race every day before he went to sleep and every day when he woke up in the morning. Phelps would visualize every aspect of swimming, a successful race starting from the blocks where he would dive into the water, culminating even in the celebration after the race was won. This kind of mental discipline is one of the reasons Phelps was able to compete at the level he did. His visualizations allowed him to prepare for and push through any potential obstacles that could come to him. Well, in the Christian life, we too can greatly benefit from a similar kind of discipline in our own faith. In fact, in our text this morning, Jesus gives a few of his disciples what we might call a visualization to help them understand him rightly and to keep them faithful in even the toughest of circumstances. He gives them a visualization that we can and should incorporate in our own faith as a kind of spiritual discipline to help us remain faithful in this life. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, which you can find on page 844 of the Bibles provided. And, and by the way, if you don't have a personal Bible at home that you can read on your own, feel free to just take one of the Bibles underneath the seats uh, that we provide here. We would love for you to just have your own copy of God's Word that you can read on your own. Each week, we spend a portion of time in our service just seeking to understand what a, a passage of Scripture says, what it means, and how to apply it to our lives. We believe that God has spoken to us about Himself in His Word, and that He uses His Word to change people's hearts and to reveal Himself. Now, if you've been with us as we've 
gone about studying the Gospel of Mark, then you've probably heard me say this a number of times. I hope you're not tired of hearing it at this point. But the book was written to explain to the readers who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we just crossed a hugely important section of the book in chapter 8, in which Peter has perhaps his, his best moment in the book. Jesus asks Peter who Peter says he is, and Peter confesses rightly, you are the Christ. And then if you continue reading, you know what happens immediately after that. That's pretty much when Peter's best moment goes away quickly, because he immediately shows that his idea about what it means that Jesus is the Christ is totally different than what Jesus teaches. Jesus reveals a sobering and shocking truth the truth that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed and rise again. And Peter, overcome with zeal, rebukes Jesus. And in rebuking Jesus, he is opposing the very plan of God, which is to side with Satan. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and even calls him Satan. How quickly we move from Peter's best moment to perhaps one of his worst Peter assumed that nothing could happen to the Messiah. And then Jesus took it a step further and said, not only would the Messiah suffer and be killed, but those who wanted to follow him should also pick up their cross. Well, it's from the end of chapter 8 that we learn that following Christ is a costly falling, following, calling, excuse me. To follow the Son of Man means to follow him even when the world is against him, even to the point of death. Now, all of this would have completely shocked and confused and discouraged the disciples. And they must have had a difficult time coming to terms with the meaning behind it all. And it's with all of that as a backdrop that we read our passage this morning. Let's read it together now. Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John... And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This text is both a confirmation of Jesus' identity and his victory. That he is God's son, that he is greater than anyone who came before him, 
Not only does it deem Jesus' words as true, but it reveals that suffering will not have the final say. While, we must, while he must suffer according to the predetermined plan of God, he will rise in glory and power. It teaches us that the cross is no accident, nor is it a hindrance. It is a necessary step in God's redemptive work. This passage has been called famously the transfiguration because Jesus transforms into heavenly brightness before the disciples to show them his glory. And that word used to describe Jesus' change is actually where we get the English word metamorphosis from, which in most textbooks, you know, the, the main example of this kind of complete change is of a caterpillar that changes into a butterfly in a cocoon before it emerges. That's the most common example. So in this passage, the rabbi that the disciples have been diligently following completely transforms into something else in order to give them confidence later for what his life meant for the world. But it's not as though Jesus is transforming into something that he's never been before. He's simply revealing his true self to the disciples. The main idea behind this event and the, and the conversation that follows between Jesus and the disciples is that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus so that we can have confidence in him, even in our suffering. God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus so that we can have confidence in him, even in our suffering. As we go through this passage, my prayer is that you will behold the glory of Christ in a way that stirs your heart to hope for heaven. And that you'll be reminded to expect opposition from the world if you decide to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So first, look with me at the glory of Christ in verses 2 through 8. The glory of Christ. Jesus is on a journey with his disciples for six days before ascending a mountain. And we're not exactly sure what mountain this is, but... Already, your biblical theology sensors should be moving. They should be detecting a unique moment about to happen because in the Bible, mountaintops are often places of divine revelation. Think about Mount Horeb where God spoke to Moses from the burning bush or later at Sinai where he not only spoke and met with Moses, but he gave them the law. In the Gospel of Mark even, we've seen Jesus go up on a mountain to select his 12 disciples, symbolizing a new people that Jesus is creating. He also went up the mountain to pray after feeding a great crowd in the wilderness. Now, scholars have guessed that he's climbing a mountain called Mount Hermon, and there's no way to know for sure, like I said, but just to give you an idea, that specific mountain is over 9,000 elevation. So, Probably about the height of the mountains you see around us with snow caps on the top from time to time, if not higher than that. Mark doesn't tell us how high up the mountain they journeyed, but I think it's safe to assume that this was not just a, a leisurely stroll, but probably a, a hike to a remote point. And Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John, who are kind of like the inner circle among his disciples. If you remember when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter... He took these three with him as well behind closed doors. And then later in chapter 14, 
He's going to take them deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane to keep watch while he prays on the night of his betrayal and crucifixion. So these three are kind of like the inner circle. And he takes them alone to experience this spectacular event in which Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. And you can just tell that the language used by Mark to describe this event is nothing that can really be compared with anything else. In verse 3, he says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke tells us that this happened in the middle of the night. He's illuminating the entire area, and it's not actually just his clothes, but his face as well is shining like the sun. Those kinds of descriptions are not very common in the Bible, but let me quote just a few for you. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Or Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Jesus is shining with a supernatural brilliance that cannot be matched on earth. And while Mark describes just his clothes, both Matthew and Luke, as I said, describe his face and his entire body as well. Just think about how bright the sun is. I mean, we're not supposed to look at the sun. Kids, listen to your parents. Don't look at the sun. But if you do and you happen to disobey them, you know that it hurts your eyes. And it makes it even hard to see after that. Jesus here is shining like the sun. And he's also standing with two Old Testament celebrities. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. And just imagine what a conversation that must have been. Both of these figures did incredible works with, for God in the Old Testament. Uh, both of them met with God on Sinai or Horeb at different times. Both of them, interestingly enough, have unique death stories. Uh, and, and really, Elijah did not die. He was taken up by a chariot of fire. Moses, when he passed, was up on a mountain with the Lord before the promised land. And so both of these figures, powerful Old Testament prophet-like figures, have kind of unknown resting sites, unlike many other famous figures in the Old Testament where it's specifically described they're at rest in the tombs of their fathers in such and such a land. It's just an interesting fact. But both figures also represent major divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Moses representing the law as the giver of the law and Elijah the prophet's. And so it is as if the law and the prophets are testifying to the glory and the majesty of Christ. Luke actually summarizes what they are talking about. He says they're speaking about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. And that word for departure is actually the word exodus. They're talking about a new exodus that would be led by Jesus. Now perhaps you've already made some of these connections, but this whole event feels very similar to Exodus 34, where God met with Moses. Afterward, Moses came down from the mountain and his face was shining because of the glory of God, so much so that the people had to put a veil over Moses' head because it was too bright for them. The people were terrified, just like the disciples are terrified here. And I think that Mark wants us to think about that event specifically because Mark rarely in his gospel gives us time markers. And he does here in verse 2. 
He says they journeyed for six days, which just happens to be the amount of time that Moses spent with God before receiving the Ten Commandments. But in the case of Jesus, he's not merely just reflecting leftover glory from God. He, as the Son of Man, is the very reflection of the glory of God. Jesus is the light of the world. He's revealing to his disciples the very glory of his celestial presence, which was for a time veiled in humility of his humanity. You're probably familiar with the great Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's one of my favorites. And there's a line that just captures the truth of the incarnation beautifully. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what the disciples are witnessing. Now, most people, when met with the presence of God in the Bible, fall to the ground in terror and can hardly say anything. And there's Peter. Peter is a little different, isn't he? You can always count on Peter to give you a, a little confidence boost. Peter says, Rabbi, which right away to me just seems way too casual of a way to address Jesus, too informal of a title at this moment. And then he says, it's good that we're here, as if Jesus needed something from him. Good thing you brought me, Jesus. I can build tents for you. Now, some have read Peter's words and looked for a, a deeper meaning, a, a kind of tabernacle meeting, just like God's presence dwelled in in the Old Testament. Uh, that, that word tabernacle means dwelling, and so the tent of meeting was called the tabernacle. Those two were synonymous. But I don't know if that's exactly what was on Peter's mind, because Mark tells us he was so afraid that he had no idea what else to say. He just blurts out the first thing that he can think of, which is to make tents. He doesn't realize that they won't stay long. And worse, because he says, I can make three tents. He seems to put Jesus on an equal plane as Moses and Elijah. He doesn't make any distinction between the three. But based on the description, Jesus is actually the only one who is shining with such radiance. And we haven't even talked about the voice yet. But when the voice from God comes and speaks... Notice it doesn't say anything about Moses or Elijah, only Jesus. Because Jesus is not the same as Moses or Elijah. As amazing figures as they were, they were still sinners. Moses struck the rock when he should have spoken to it. Elijah ran away from God to Horeb where the Lord confronted him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? These two figures don't show up because Jesus is on par with them. They show up because Jesus is the one that their ministries pointed to and are ultimately fulfilled in. They are resting in the glory of God that is found in Christ. Peter missed the fact that in Jesus, the glory of God was already dwelling. That his very person is, as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us, as John 1 says. Jesus didn't need a tent or a tabernacle. Jesus is the tent or tabernacle of God, to think about it in the Old Testament theological terms. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you want to know more about Jesus, you're searching for him and to know more about God in general, what it means to be a Christian, you don't need to look anywhere else to learn about God than at his son, Jesus. In fact, to look anywhere else but Christ is to ignore God. If you want to get to know him, get to know his beloved son. That's a title, by the way, the beloved son, that I don't think is used for anyone else in the entire Bible, to my, to my knowledge. I've not checked. I think we can sometimes make the mistake that Peter makes here in our own walk with Christ. I recognize we may not all find ourselves in the same exact position as Peter, being shown the glory of Christ right in front of our eyes. But I do think we can easily find ways to distract ourselves and become spiritual busybodies. Peter immediately looks for something to do, perhaps to make himself useful when he should have just been taking it all in. I don't know about you, but there are all kinds of things that I can make myself busy with, sometimes good and godly things, Christian things, but I can get caught up thinking that I need to be doing things that I sometimes forget to just sit and admire Christ for who he is. Do you ever think about reading your Bible not to get through a plan or to check off the box of having a devotional for that time of day, but to just enjoy time with Jesus, to learn about him and to admire him? Pray that we as individuals would make a regular habit of doing that. This visual transfiguration of Jesus was enough to terrify the disciples as uh, it was already. But that's not all that happens. Once again, like, like Mount Sinai, a cloud comes and covers them, which is what happened when God's glory filled the tent of meeting and the temple and so forth and left the temple eventually. God's presence descending on the area. And this is my own speculation, but given that the right response is always fear and terror when anyone is among this kind of presence in the Bible... I don't think this is a, a calm or, you know, cozy, misty fog. I've come to really enjoy overcast weather. I don't know about you. Uh, it can be calming and blissful sometimes, make you want to grab a blanket and some tea and maybe a good book. But it's not that kind of cloud. My guess is that this cloud was a dreadful cloud that have a, had a very heavy feeling to it. Out of the cloud came a booming voice the very voice of God, which has only been heard audibly by a select few in the Bible, and now the disciples are privileged enough to be included in that list. And if it wasn't already obvious, let me just state clearly that anytime God audibly speaks in the Bible, we should pay very close attention. Out of the cloud came the voice of God, saying what I think is the most important part of this passage. He says in verse 7, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Has there ever been such an endorsement before? Ever such a clearer sign from God about what we should do? It, it's really similar, actually, to the declaration that was made by God at Jesus' his baptism. But in his baptism, the voice speaks, and it speaks to Jesus. And he says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. But here, it's directed at the disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
It's actually the only imperative given in this whole section of verses. Uh, Mark summarizes and tells us that Jesus tells his disciple not to tell anyone, but this is the only quoted dialogue of a imperative. Listen to the beloved Son of God. Listen to what he says. Seek out the meaning of what he says and obey him. So if just a few moments ago I made the application of admiring Jesus, now I can make the application of not just admiring him, but listening to him, seeking to understand him. How are you doing listening to Jesus? It's not just a command that mattered only to the disciples at this one time. Do you pay attention to the things that Jesus has said? Do you prioritize the things that Jesus says in your life? How familiar are you with the things that Jesus has said? Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize how important it is that Christians know and understand the sayings of Jesus. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, which means you can't claim to love Jesus and to be a follower of him and never pay attention to his words. The mark of a true Christian is a reverence for the word of God and a desire to conform to it. We're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which necessitates listening to the voice of Jesus. Now, given the context of this event, it seems clear to me that the voice of God is instructing the disciples not just to listen to Jesus generally, but to pay careful attention to his teaching. And specifically, I think he's referring to the teaching that is difficult for them to hear. Remember at the beginning, the context of this passage, I summarized what happened previously, just six days earlier. Now Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, which he's going to do two more times in the next few chapters. And he spoke to them about the suffering that would come to his followers. And so the voice of God is testifying to the disciples that the identity of Jesus is the Son of God, and he's instructing them to listen to what he says must occur. This is like a confirmation that Jesus is as glorious as they believe he is. They get just a glimmer of it for a few seconds to show that despite his suffering and even death, he is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. And he is the one who will rule for all eternity, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord. After hearing the confusing news that the Son of Man must suffer, this transfiguration for the disciples is like a preview of the victory that will be Christ's in the end. But that glorious end does not come without suffering first. The crown is not won apart from the cross. So friends, just like in the time of Jesus, beware of anyone who tries to tell you that you can be saved without doing anything or giving anything up in your life. That's what we refer to as cheap grace. It's not true Christianity. True religion, true grace is costly. It costs the Son of Man his life. And it may cost us ours as well. But the reward will be eternal glory. Verse 8 says that suddenly the disciples looked around and they didn't see anyone but Jesus. 
Jesus alone remained, once again showing that Christ is the one who matters. The Son of Man in all His glory was changed back to His normal human self because in the humble form of a servant, He still had work to do on earth. The disciples were shown just a glimpse of His glory to keep in mind as they go about their lives following Him. That's the glory of Christ. Now look with me at the suffering of Christ in verses 9 through 13. The suffering of Christ. After witnessing the glory of God shining in the person of Jesus, they come down the mountain. And along the way, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about what happened after, until after his resurrection. And this has been typical in Jesus' ministry to tell people to keep quiet until the proper time. Uh, but this is, in fact, the last time that Jesus is going to command them to do that. Now, I don't know how in the world do you go through something like this transfiguration and then just not tell anybody about it. But they're also preoccupied with the last part of his instruction about rising from the dead. They didn't know what it meant. And that's probably because they still didn't understand that Jesus was going to suffer and be killed. Peter resisted that idea. And while they heard Jesus teach it, they were slow to understand what it meant. They were trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and that's where that question about Elijah comes into play. Just exactly what what does this mean? They asked Jesus why the scribes say that Elijah must come first, which I assume means that Jews were either just taught generally to expect Elijah before the Messiah came, or that the scribes were using it specifically as an objection to Jesus' miracles and work as a way to discredit the things that he was doing. Because if they could downplay his miracles, and they could say, well, Elijah hasn't come, so clearly he can't be the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, the reason they said that was because of a prophecy in the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the entire Old Testament. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. They're actually the last few verses of the entire Old Testament. God says, He will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That is the day of judgment and restoration of the kingdom that would then be an everlasting kingdom. Now, I don't know if the disciples were being genuinely curious or if they were testing what they had just seen and experienced with what the scribes were teaching. Uh, If that is the case, then what an audacious thing to be shown the glory of God and then to still have lingering doubts in their minds. But based on the things that they've done in the past, I wouldn't necessarily put it past them either. They've been given so much over and over again, and they seem to understand so little. That's because the Holy Spirit has not opened their eyes to see everything clearly yet. And because most, the most meaningful moments of Jesus' life that will allow them to bring all of those truths together had not yet occurred. I'm referring to His death and resurrection. One of the reasons... Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone about his transfiguration until after he rises from the dead is because it won't make sense until after he rises from the dead. You can't make sense of Jesus apart from both his suffering and his glory together. If you focus on just one of those things, you'll have an incomplete picture of Jesus. If you think of only his suffering, for example then there is no promise of an eternity in heaven. There's no victory over death. On the other hand, if you look at only his 
glorified and resurrected state, but forget about the suffering, then there can be no atonement or no forgiveness of sins. There can be no hope of heaven for us. The message of the Bible is that while we are created by God, we all have sinned against Him, offending His holiness, bringing upon ourselves His judgment and hell. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which He loved us, sent His Son to be a ransom for us. He was pierced for our transgressions, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He rose three days later, defeating death, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where He sits now, calling everyone everywhere to repent and to trust in Him. But both of those truths need to be at play for the gospel to be true. Christ must be both the suffering servant and the conquering king. As we learned in chapter 8, the disciples just couldn't fathom the Messiah, the idea of a Messiah that would be suffered and, and killed. But Jesus shows them his glory for a brief moment so that they would have this preview, this mental image going forward of the glory that is his. And if they visualize Jesus' transfiguration, they'll know that the cross was not a failure. It was a necessary step in redeeming sinners. They would be able to look back and know that even though the cross is folly to the world, it is the power to save and the means by which we will dwell with him and share in his glory in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. Colossians 3 says it beautifully. It's one of my favorite passages. Paul says, To set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears... What a line. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The disciples got a preview of that glory. So, brothers and sisters, my main application is that we should visualize Christ's glory as well to help us get through the trouble in our lives. Do you set your mind on the things above, as Colossians 3 says, the things of heaven? Do you regularly remind yourself that this life on earth is just a drop in the bucket of eternity? We have this story recorded for us, as well as the entire corpus of Scripture, to testify to the hope that is ours in Christ. This passage reminds me of Revelation 21, where John describes the new Jerusalem shining, where the Lamb is with His saints, and he says there's no sun or no moon in the city because the Lamb is their light. His radiance illuminates the entire city. Just like the disciples, we can look at Jesus' transfiguration and be confident that when Christ appears again in glory, then we will appear with him as well. And so we eagerly await his return. We take all pain and suffering and stride because we know that it is temporary and that one day we will cross over the banks to the celestial city and that our burdens will only be a memory. We'll stand beside Christ in new resurrected bodies and look back at our burdens. Our faith will be made sight. There will be no more pain or no more tears. He will be our God 
and we will be his people. This transfiguration is like Jesus telling his disciples how the war with sin is going to end in order to give them confidence to fight through the battle. How confident would you be to enter into a battle if you could somehow go into the future and know how it was going to end? Brothers and sisters, we know that death will not have the final say. It does not have power over the glorious Christ Jesus. And so Jesus confirms that it is indeed true that Elijah must come first. Jesus, perceiving their difficulty to understand this, asks them, he, he goes on and, and asks them, well, and, how, and how is it that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's like he's saying, yes, there are many things that are difficult to understand in the Bible. It's a good reminder for us. And that's when he tells them that Elijah has come in the ministry of John the Baptist, which is a little confusing, but just remember the way that John the Baptist was introduced to us back in chapter 1. He's described in a similar manner as the prophet Elijah. In fact, even in his diet and clothing, he's eating locusts, dressed in camel's hair. He had a ministry of preaching repentance for the kingdom of God. And not only that, but you might remember throughout the Gospel of Mark that people were comparing the ministries of Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Even at John's birth, Luke records in Luke 1 verse 17, that the angel said John would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people, to make the people ready for the Lord. And so Jesus tells his disciples that Elijah has already come. And Mark doesn't state it clearly, but Matthew explains, he writes a line that he says, when Jesus said that Elijah had already come, the disciples understood that he was referring to John the Baptist. That prophecy is fulfilled in the ministry of John and confirms that his own ministry would be characterized by suffering because the world would treat Jesus the same way it treated Jesus' forerunner. John was rejected and killed by Herod. They did whatever they pleased with John. And so they will do whatever they please with Jesus as well. God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus so that we can have confidence in him even in our suffering. It's a strange thing to have confidence in someone that was killed. But Jesus is laying the groundwork for his disciples to properly understand his death and his resurrection. And as they were able to behold his glory just for a brief moment, we too can set our minds on the things above and visualize the glory of Christ as we walk through life in this broken world. It's the only way we can understand the cross as anything other than a horrific injustice and a terrible accident. But it wasn't either of those things. It was the plan of God to rescue and to redeem sinners and to make a way for us to appear with Christ in glory when he does come to judge the earth. So brothers and sisters, remember the glory of Christ and meditate on your future glory with him. Expect the world to treat you in the same way it treated Christ, with contempt. The Apostle Paul says that those who don't see Jesus correctly have a veil over their eyes in this life and are blinded by Satan. But for us, 
That veil has been removed. Our earthly home is just a tent that will be destroyed. But one day we'll have an eternal home, not built by human hands, but built by God waiting for us, where we will be with the Lord, as Paul says, so we do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hope for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for revealing your glory to us perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on you and to remember your promises to us. Thank you that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for you are with us. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of the future glory with Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.